All right, so we are talking, we're continuing through our series entitled Fathered by God. And in, in the last couple of weeks of this series, after we've just established some things about who God is and the relationship that he wants to have with us, we're now talking about different circumstances of life that we can find ourselves in. And my guess would be, in each of these scenarios that we're covering over these few weeks, that you've either already been in one of these circumstances or you will be in the future. And so um, the idea is whatever circumstance of life that we find ourselves in, that we would have the mentality where we, we lean into God in those circumstances. It's so easy when things are difficult to be frustrated with him or even feel distant from him Maybe if we've created the difficulty, our own guilt and shame may cause us to just retreat from him. Um, when life is confusing and complicated, we can feel like, God, why aren't you giving me more direction? And we can get frustrated. When life is good, if you're anything like me, when life is good, I can just take it for granted and not stop and be grateful and recognize, God, you've, you've, you've blessed my life. And so the idea here is how do we learn to have conversations with a father who loves us and is with us no matter what circumstances of life we find ourselves in. All right, that's, that's the idea. So last Sunday, um, my, my intention was to talk about when we're in a valley season. Crystal referenced this a little bit during worship. If you missed last Sunday, we talked about what happens when we're in a valley season, which I would just equate to being in a really hard, difficult season of life where things feel really overwhelming. And so we began to talk about when we find ourselves in a valley that's not our fault. David experienced trouble in his life, and he didn't deserve it. He didn't ask for it. He hadn't done anything wrong. He had enemies that just, man, they pursued him and were after him, and he found himself in difficulty that other people had created in his life. In some instances, it was others' mistakes that had hurt him. And so David had a very real choice to make. Would he choose to trust God in the midst of that? Would he trust God to protect him? Would he trust God to help see his way out? We even talked about how difficult it is when, when people who know God and love God, they're the ones who hurt us. And how easy it is for us to then feel like God's the one that's hurt us. And so... We started there last week, and my intention last week was also then to go into what about the valley seasons that we create, when we kind of dig our own hole, and we're in trouble of our own doing, and, and we can feel just as stuck and just as overwhelmed and just as in trouble. And David found himself in that kind of a situation, and even there, even in a situation where he created the trouble, he found God present to be his help in the midst of that difficulty. So we're picking up there this morning, all right? So let's start by reading Psalm 23 again. That was our launching off point last Sunday. Let's read this together, and then, and then we're going to jump right into this. So Psalm chapter 23, you can follow along on the screen if you like. We're just going to read the whole psalm. This is verses 1 through 6. Verse 1 starts, this is a psalm of David. And he says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. 
He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, there's that valley season. It feels like death is happening. It feels like destruction is coming. I'm overwhelmed. Even in that valley season, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. The reason David can say I'll fear no evil is not because he's got it figured out or he can get his way out of trouble. It's because he recognizes God is present. And then he says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. We talked about how if you're a sheep and there's a shepherd, the rod and the staff can, can be a source of protection to, to fight off you know, the wolves that might come in to fight off trouble. But also a rod or a staff is there for correction. If you get off track, the shepherd can redirect you and get you back on track. And David says, I find comfort in that, that God will both protect me and correct me. Verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Even in the hardest season, God will still provide for me. He'll take care of me. He'll give me what I need. And I can believe that there will even be goodness that's still coming even if it doesn't feel like it right here, right now. And then verse 6 kind of summarizes this whole thing. He's assured now, as he's reflected on God's presence in his life, the psalmist says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I can be assured that God's goodness, his blessing, his hand will be on my life, and his mercy is there for me, because I'm going to need it. There's going to be times where I'm going to need it. So there's Psalm 23. And so whatever circumstance we're in, if I'm in a valley and I need protection because there's difficulty swirling around me, God's present and he's there. If I'm in a valley because I've blown it and I've gotten myself into trouble, he's there and, and his correction actually comforts me and his mercy pursues me. Um, after church last Sunday, I was having a conversation with, with my good buddy Rob and Rob just had this cool observation. He was talking about the way you see God moving in this passage. And he says, you know, it's interesting. It's God that's leading us to the pasture and to the still calm water. And it's his mercy that pursues us. So the idea is we don't get ourselves to the place of being refreshed. I don't find that on my own. And then even when he gets me there, I'm prone to wander away from that. And so he is faithfully pursuing us with mercy when we've gotten off track to bring us back to the green pasture in the still water. What, what happens in the green pasture in the still water? He restores my soul and he puts me back on a path of righteousness. And so he pursues us when we've gotten off track and man, when we find ourselves off track, he doesn't say, well, good luck, get yourself back on track. We go, help. He says, all right, I'm right here. Let me lead you back to where you need to go. I love that. And so that's the framework of where we're going this morning. We're, we're going to talk about a, a hard, difficult story in David's life. And there are, man, this isn't one of those warm, fuzzy, flowery sermons. It's just not. But, but I believe if we hear this accurately, it leads to 
the warm fuzzy. It leads to restoration and redemption and goodness. And so my hope is that we will hear God's pursuit of us when we've gotten ourselves off track and, and we're stuck, we're in trouble, all right? Now, I wanna, I wanna address you guys personally for just a minute and say this. In this story, we're gonna see the prophet Nathan showing up and, and he's kind of coming on God's behalf to talk to David. And, and he's pursuing David. He's, he's calling out an issue, but he's also offering a solution to the issue. I want to say to you guys this morning as I'm delivering this message, I'm not coming as the prophet Nathan. I'm coming as a bro who's been David. This has been real in my life. I have needed to be rescued from my own sin and failure. And so I'm coming to you as a David to say, I've seen God faithfully pursue me and restore me when I've blown it. The other thing I want to encourage you with this morning is, is this. If you're sitting here going, man, this just isn't where I am right now. I love God. I'm good. Life's good. I, one of the things I, I worry about for my, my fellow followers of Jesus is that we wait till we're in trouble to then figure out what to do. And I think preemptively, we can learn to do some things that when trouble finds us, we know right where to go. And so if you're in a great place this morning and you're walking with the Lord and life is good, awesome. I, I pray this would encourage you in what you can do when you find yourself in trouble in the future. I also would encourage you to listen to this because we're called to be like our Father. And so if you know and love other people, who have gotten themselves into trouble, God can, can help us be like him in those circumstances where we pursue with mercy, where we pursue with grace, where we can be a source of helping people be restored. Does that make sense? Okay, so there's all my preemptive things before the sermon. So here we go. So we're talking about uh, David and a huge failure in his life. This story is found in... Um, 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. Um, and so I would encourage you, you can read both of those chapters kind of in full to get the whole story. I'm going to give you the overview really fast of what David did to get himself in trouble. Um, it matters for the context of this story. But ultimately, in our lives, there's all kinds of ways we get ourselves into trouble. So it's really about what do I do once I'm there. So we're going to focus on that this morning. But the, the nuts and bolts of this story is that David, his kingdom is established. Um, you know, this is years after he's defeated Goliath. He's become king now. Things are relatively good in his kingdom. There are some battles going on. And David, who's been a warrior kind of his whole life, he's gone out with his men to face trouble. In this instance, he decides to stay home and relax, and he gets complacent. And his men are out on the front fighting. And so in his complacency, sitting at home, he looks out and he sees Bathsheba, and she's out on a rooftop, and it leads to trouble. I won't get into all the specifics, but it, it leads to trouble. And Bathsheba's married to another guy who's out on the battlefront. And so he commits adultery with her. A short time passes, and she sends him word, I'm pregnant now. And now he's really realizing he's in trouble. 
And so he goes through all these steps to try to, try to hide and cover and patch up the situation. And ultimately, he can't, he can't find a way out of it. And so he sends a note to the battlefront to say, let Bathsheba's husband fight right near the front of the battle, right where the battle is the worst. And the idea is Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, will die. And he does. And then David brings Bathsheba in to become his wife. And now Uriah is dead. Bathsheba is his wife. There's a child on the way. And he thinks no one's the wiser. And we pick up the story where the prophet Nathan at the start of chapter 12 now comes to him. God kind of lets the prophet in on what's going on. And he comes to him to talk to David. Now, there's a really interesting thing that Nathan does here. And you, you, I would encourage you to read it on your own. It's a, it's a cool little nugget. It's just the first four verses of this chapter. He tells this story. He doesn't show up and say, David, you blew it. You know, puts the finger right in his face. You messed up, Jan. You're the one. He doesn't do that. He comes in and he tells this story about this rich guy who had a lot of livestock, a lot of sheep. And there's this other poor guy that lives near him who has almost nothing. He lives a simple life. He's got this one lamb. And this lamb is so special and important to him and his family. It's more like the way we would picture like, like a puppy dog that's in our house. He says he, he nursed the lamb, cared for it. It was like one of his own kids. And so the rich man has a guest that comes into town. Instead of taking one from his, his large flock, he takes this one lamb from the guy and prepares a meal for his guest. Takes the only thing this guy has. And so Nathan looks at David and it's like, so that's what the guy's done. What do we do now? 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 5. <clears throat> then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. He says, this guy owes a huge debt. He needs to pay it back four times, and he deserves death. Nathan's kind of a smart guy, isn't he? <laughs> I don't know about you, but when I look at sin, and it's someone else's, I usually have a pretty strong sense of justice. I usually have a pretty strong sense of like, well, they did this, and it caused this, and it deserves this, and I just kind of tend to have a really strong sense of the right thing that needs to happen to bring the appropriate level of punishment and fix the problem. However, when I'm looking my own sin, my own shortcomings, my own failures in the face, my tendency is not that. Suddenly, I'm all about mercy. <laughs> Suddenly, I'm all about, you know, getting help and being forgiven. And then there's things I do in my own mind where I start minimizing what I've done. The people around me are making it a bigger deal than it is. It's really not that bad. It wasn't really my intention. You know, it was an accident or I just kind of, I just slipped up. It was a mistake. And I, I find ways to minimize it, or I find ways to just hide it. I don't want it to be known. And I, and 
I, I then stop even being honest with myself because the easiest way to lie is to lie to yourself first. So I, I minimize it. And so what Nathan does here, whether, whether we realize it or not, it, it seems kind of cunning almost, and it is, he's actually doing David a favor. Guys, one of the most important things that we can learn to do in our life when we have blown it is to look at it honestly, to be honest, to be honest about what we've done, to be honest about the fallout of what we've done. And so Nathan creates a scenario where David can see it. He's actually able to remove himself from the situation so he can see his sin from the outside. And so what does that cause? It causes David to recognize, first of all, just how wrong it is. It causes him to see the, the damage that it's caused. It's not just wrong. I see clearly how this hurt. I can see it from someone else's perspective. David's putting himself in the place of the guy who had his lamb stolen and killed and doesn't even have the ability to defend himself or stop it from happening. He sees the injustice. So he sees it's wrong. He sees the damaged cause. He even has this idea. You know, David's kind of making a judgment. He's saying this guy had no pity. Like one of the things that bothers David is the guy that stole the lamb had no sorrow about it. He had no sense of this was wrong. That, that godly sorrow is an essential part of us getting things right with God. God, I don't want to become so calloused to decisions I make, to, to ways I hurt people that, that I don't even recognize. Like I have reason to feel some regret here. I have reason to feel like I've messed up. And then ultimately, David says, hey, there should be some judgment. There's, there's a debt that needs to be paid. And he's, he's ready to wield the word death. Death. Over a lamb that was stolen. The, the question boils down to, step one, when we have found ourselves in trouble, well, step one is where we opened. God loves us and is pursuing us with mercy. We can't do any of the rest of this if we don't see that first. Because how can I be honest with myself or with God if he's just really upset and angry and ready to smite me? But if he's merciful and he's pursuing me, then that gives me the ability to do step one, which is, am I willing to see my sin for what it really is? In light of God's mercy, I can step into the light and have some honesty. And that honesty starts right here in my head and in my heart first. And then it might extend to having some honesty with other people. Um, I'm really grateful for this, this truth being kind of put into my life. You know, when I was a kid growing up, um, in, in my mind anyways, there was always just kind of two simple steps when you'd messed up, Right? I say I'm sorry, and their job is to say they forgive me. Anybody remember that as a kid, right? Mom and dad, if you had siblings, they'd get you together. You say you're sorry, you say you forgive them, let's patch it up. But there's, there's a little bit more to the process. And so it is our job to, to repent or say we're sorry. But step one is this. This idea of being willing to see our sin for what it really is, what that means is I'm confessing the reality of the problem. I'm, I'm owning up to the, the whole thing, 
Not the minimized version, not the simplified version, not the version that makes me feel better or look better or make it seem not as bad as it is. The real full version, and this is what I've done. Confession. It is an essential first step in being reconciled. How can the problem be fixed if I won't even acknowledge it? I have to be willing to acknowledge it. So it starts with confession, honesty. If there's no acknowledgement of what's been done wrong and we just skip to repentance and saying, I'm sorry and I'm not going to do it again, if we skip to that, I, I actually, that gets cut short. There isn't true repentance without first an honest confession. I, my wife, unfortunately, has had to deal with this with me over the years, where I do these half-measure apologies where really I'm just ready for the conversation to be over and I don't want her to be mad at me or, or I'm mad at her and feel justified in that, so I'm minimizing my part. And I just want to brush through it really quick. Seventeen and a half years in, that don't work. <laughs> I, I'm, I still learned that probably within the last month, so this isn't something I've overcome yet, unfortunately. But every now and then, I have this aha moment of like, hey, I probably need to really own up to my part of this. Maybe that would help. Some honesty, some real confession. And it does help. And so we start there. Minimizing your sin will never lead to healing or true change. It will not. Honesty about our sin. Honesty about the mess we've gotten ourselves in. That, that leads to help. I'll give you a couple of scriptures to consider that just affirm this idea. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, there's an if. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. Isn't that cool? Part of God's justice is forgiveness. It didn't say he's faithful and just to punish us. When we confess, there may be consequence. We're going to talk about that. But it says that he's faithful and just to forgive us. Part of his justice is that he's already dealt with the problem. He has created the solution. His name is Jesus. The reason we can confess our sins and trust that he will be faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from some of our unrighteousness that the parts that aren't too terribly bad, like just, you know, a little white lie, all unrighteousness, the worst of the worst, the worst that we're capable of and that we can do, he's faithful and just to forgive us of all of it. Why can he do that? Why can I honestly confess my sin, ugly as it may be? Because God is the most honest of all of us. He understands more fully than we do the true effects of sin. And that's why we see him willing to come as one of us and go to the cross. Because he says if we're really honest about what sin does, it kills things. It leads to death. Sin kills my own walk with the Lord. It cuts it off. Because then I become distant with him because I'm hiding or running or whatever. Sin hurts other people. It can destroy relationships. The fallout's massive. 
But thank God for Jesus. God already knew we would find ourselves in these very situations. And so he sent Jesus to say, hey, you can be honest about the full weight and ugliness of your sin because I have fully dealt with it. You have every opportunity to receive mercy because justice has been met in Jesus. Therefore, it's just for me to forgive you because he's dealt with the fallout. He's taken it on himself. And so we can confess and believe he will forgive. All right, one more verse, James 5, 16, the first half of that verse. Therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So at the simplest level, confession is going to him and believing that he will be faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us, give us a fresh start. And he also invites us to go to each other. When, when we mess up, we need that tangible thing. I, I don't need to go shout to everyone in the world what I've done wrong. But there's a couple people I need to find. For sure the offending party and maybe a couple of key people in my life. A family member, a friend, a pastor, whoever. Two or three people I can look at and say, I got to be real and honest. This is what I've done. God, God does that because it becomes real for us. The sin was real, and it had real impact in the world around us. The confession becomes real. It does start here before God, and he does extend forgiveness, but I bring it out into the real world, and I connect with some other people. And it, it is the starting point, the launching point, that, that leads into healing and reconciliation. Is this making sense? Y'all tracking with me? All right. Now, at this point, all David knows is he's being honest about this story and this sin that he's seen, and he sees it needs to be dealt with. And so at this moment, Nathan now says, okay, David, that righteous anger that you're feeling right now, now you just need to point it in the right direction. And so it's, it's confession time for you. It's time for you to see this. And so he tells the story, David responds, and now in verse 7, Nathan says to David, you are the man. There's the moment, right in the face. It's you, buddy. You're the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. This is what we talked about last Sunday. As God is approaching David with the, the truth of his error and the invitation to come and receive mercy, he points to previous faithfulness. Hey, David, I've blessed your life. Goodness has followed you. You're now the king. My rod has provided you with protection. I delivered you from Saul. My goodness is available in your life. My protection is available in your life. And now in this moment, now you need that same rod to bring correction. And that's what's going to happen. And then the next few verses unpack some of the fallout. David, David's family life is going to be in turmoil as a result of this. In fact, this child that's, that's coming is going to die. There's, there's real fallout, real consequences to his sin. And so David's now faced with that reality, and this is the crucial moment. Will he confess? Will he own up to it? 
And he does. Verse 13. Then David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. He'd also sinned against Uriah. He caused Bathsheba to participate in sin. There's other, there were other factors, but David first and foremost says, I'm owning up to this sin, and God, I've, I've done this to you first and foremost. Then Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin, you shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. I want y'all to hear this. David confesses. There's repentance. I've blown it. I'm sorry. We're going to look more in depth at his repentance in a few minutes. I've blown it. I'm sorry. But listen, there are ongoing consequences that still take place in David's life. I have to be real with you guys. There are times that God's mercy will come and will forgive and cleanse our sin and he wipes away some consequences for us. I've experienced that. He does that. But there are times in life where the choices and decisions we've made are going to have a fallout. They're going to have consequences. And God doesn't necessarily remove those. We're forgiven, we're restored, we're on the, on the path to heading in the right direction again, but those very real consequences are going to play out. And we should approach them the way David does. Verse 16 now. The child has become sick. He's already been told this child's going to die. And verse 16, David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. He pursues relief from the consequences. That's okay to do. God, I'm I'm sorry, I'm in trouble. I've made this mess. I know it. I've confessed it. God, I've made this mess. And so God, I'm saying I'm sorry. I'm not running from you. I'm turning to you. God, this is the reality of the situation I'm in. I'm being honest about it. I'm apologizing for it. God, I'm turning back to you. I'm not going to run from you. I'm going to turn towards you. I'm repenting. And God shows up and meets David there and extends mercy and grace. And he says, hey, son, I love you. But man, your sin wreaked havoc. And there's going to be some fallout. And there's going to be some consequences. And David goes, oh, God, please, please remove the consequences. Please remove the circumstances. We can do that. We can ask for that. God, would you rescue me from this? Would you fix this? Would you repair this? I I know I've blown it. I'm not minimizing that, but God, would you show up? And he may well intervene. In this case, he does not. The child dies. And the people around David are nervous because they're like, man, he's fasting, he's praying, he's he's hoping like crazy this child doesn't die. And now the child has died. What's he going to do now? Is he going to feel like his life is over because these consequences have happened? What's he going to do now? And so his servants come in and they tell him the story. Hey, this child has died. Verse 20. Then David arose from the earth and he washed 
and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. When David didn't get what he wanted, when the circumstances didn't change, what did he do? He continued to worship God and he continued to go on living. I may not be able to change all of these circumstances, but God, I'm right here today. And today, I'm going to choose to keep walking with you. I'm going to choose to worship you. And I'm going to believe there's still life in front of me to be lived. It may not look the way I thought it was going to look. It may not be the way that I want it to be. But I'm believing that your goodness is still pursuing me. And even though these circumstances haven't changed, I know I've received your mercy, that you're still my God and you're still with me and you're still for me and that you've been faithful to forgive me. And so I'm gonna keep taking the next right step. I'm gonna go on living. I'm gonna trust you. It's the path to life. The servants are confused by David's response. Verse 22 So they come in and they're like, we don't understand. Like you were acting like this before the child died. Now he has died. What are you doing? And David said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and I wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me and that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him. He will not return to me. This is is essential. It's something we pointed to last Sunday. We see it again here. Even some of the biggest things that we will lose in this life, things that we may never get back in this life, David understood the eternal principles of God. I mean, I view the story and part of me just gets mad. I'm like, why did the child have to die? This is David's fault. Maybe the child could live and David could die. How about that, God? (laughs) That's what seems right to me. But David understood that that child was an eternal being and that that he would experience full restoration in heaven. Guys, this side of heaven, we live in a broken, fallen world with people who blow it. And we are one of those people who blow it. And we live with each other, so we're around other people who make mistakes. And it is not going to be perfect here. But while we are here, we can practice this. Confession, repentance, receiving forgiveness of God, trying to learn how to extend forgiveness to each other. And all the while, we can look to the one who is ultimately redeeming everything, who's ultimately working his purposes in everything for all eternity. He may bring us some redemption on this earth. That's, that's the cool thing about the story. You know what happens next? Later, fast forward a little bit, David and Bathsheba have another child. You know who that child is? King Solomon. The king who would replace David came through God's redemption story. Not only that, David and Solomon and therefore Bathsheba, they're the great, 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 great grandparents of Jesus. Jesus. 
the broken relationship, the messed up situation, God said, I'll write that into my own personal story. My story is your story. That's what God's saying. Your story of failure and brokenness, I'm going to enter right into the middle of that. It's a part of my own story because it's a picture of the way that I will take your brokenness and I'll make new things come out of it. I'll make good things come out of it. I will bring redemption. If we will will entrust our lives into his hands and learn how to walk out this idea of confession, repentance, receiving forgiveness, and then saying, God, I'm going to trust you and live with whatever the fallout is. Maybe you'll intervene and rescue me from the consequences. Maybe I'll have to live through some consequences. But I'm going to know that you're with me. And I can trust you one step at a time. That's the invitation that's available. In closing this morning, I, I want to walk you through a couple things. And I, I debated just saying do this on your own, but I just I want to give you a little taste of this, but I would encourage you to do this on your own. And then we're, then we're going to get out of here. We actually know the conversation, right? I started this by saying we're having conversations with our father. We know the conversation that David had with his father when he did all this because he was willing to record it and put his name on it and say at the front of the psalm, this is the psalm that follows me and my error when I was with Bathsheba. He put his name on it. Isn't that cool that we now have a picture of how to have a conversation with God when we've really blown it? And so David gives us some guidance. So I want to give you a taste of this, and then um, you, I would encourage you, you could go through this on your own, Psalm 51. Um, so first of all, in this psalm, he starts out, verse 1, have mercy on me, O God. Why? Because I'm a really good dude. This is the only time I've ever messed up. I've got it all together pretty good. No. He doesn't ask God for mercy based on him and his qualifications. He asks God for mercy based on God's character. God, would you give mercy because of your steadfast love? Your love doesn't stop. It's always there for me. And so God, because of your steadfast love, if you read through this passage, David asks for mercy. He asks for God to clean him, to cleanse him. He uses different phrases, but he continues throughout this passage over and over again, God, bring your mercy. God, cleanse me. God, forgive me. Verses 1, verse 2, verse 7, verse 9, verse 10, verse 14, over and over again. He knew he could call out to the Lord for mercy. He craved it. He desired it. I don't want to hide. I don't want to minimize. God, I need your mercy. So he asked for mercy. That's a real conversation you can have with God. God, I've blown it. I've messed up. Will you be merciful to me? Second thing he does, he's really honest. He acknowledges his sin and its consequences. Verse 3, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. You ever been just reminded over and over again of a failure? Like you ever just been stuck there for a while? And like just when you think you're moving past it, like there's another fallout to it. It's like, oh man, I really did mess that up. 
He's saying, I am, I am consciously aware of it. I recognize it. It's before me. Verse 4, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. God, I just have to submit myself to you because I've done this to you and whatever you decide is right. That's a, that is a hard prayer to pray. God, whatever you decide is right in this situation, I'll take it. That's a real prayer. And that's a prayer that requires trust because you may not like his answer to that prayer. It might be difficult, but he's with you. And then I just, uh, he gets so real in verse 14. Deliver me from my blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. He recognizes that his, his sin led to death. He asks for mercy. He acknowledges his sin and its consequences. And then listen, this is so crucial. David desires real inward heart change. I would almost say if you didn't hear anything else that you hear this, don't settle for superficial patch jobs. Don't settle for that. Many times we mistake repentance for us just trying to quickly fix something so I can move on. I just want a quick fix. I just want to get out of the trouble I'm in. My apologies and my, my I'm sorry is really just, I'm sorry I'm having to live with my mistake. That's not the way David is approaching this. He's not saying, I'm just sorry I have to live with my mistake. He's saying, God, I want to be different. I want to change. I want you to do real work in me. And so we see this. Let this just wash over you a little bit. Verse 6, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. God, I'm going to get real with you right here. I need you right here. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. God, cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. God, more than anything, what I need right now is your presence. Be near to me. He can even ask for new joy. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. God, help me to hang in there and believe that once again, I can see you intervene in my life and fix me, heal me, restore me. And then finally, verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. God, I'm, I'm just coming to you as a real person who's broken and a mess and I need you. And David is aware that that's exactly what God will respond to. You're not going to earn your way out of the hole. Good works don't help you dig out of the valley. An honest, broken, contrite heart before God is the only source of salvation. God, I am here and I can't get out of here and I need your help. And the thing that is most important is that I get right with you, that I'm real and honest about my sin, that I confess it and say I'm done with it. I'm turning away from that. God, I'm ready to be different and new. Clean me and give me a fresh start. And the one thing I am promised is that he will forgive me. Other people around me may not. 
The circumstances of what I did may not change, but this can change. And I can be put on the path of righteousness once again. I can change. I can become different. And then maybe as God lifts me out of that valley, he'll surprise me. In fact, I don't think maybe. I know that he will surprise us in ways that he works to redeem and restore and heal. And I can tell you, it it may be right around the corner. It may be a long way off. But I can tell you, he will lead you back to green pasture and to still water and he will restore your soul. And you can walk in the path of righteousness once again. He's not through with you. He hasn't given up on you. Your story is not over. He loves you. He's for you. He's pursuing you. May we learn to talk to our Father when we screw up. May we not run and hide and let guilt and fear and shame hold us back. May we turn to him. Amen? Thank you guys for hanging in there this morning. I know this was a little bit of a longer sermon. I know the content was a little heavy, but I'm telling you guys, this this is the stuff of real life. God equips us with what we need to deal with real life. And I pray that we would find ourselves turning to him even in our worst, darkest moments because he's there and available. Amen? Let's pray. God, I thank you that you are a good, faithful God who pursues us. Thank you that, that you do lead us into wonderful places of refreshing and restoration. God, I also thank you that when we have found ourselves in the valley of the shadow of death, that your rod will comfort us. It might hurt. It's a rod of correction. It might hurt. But I thank you that you will lift us up out of the valley. You'll pursue us with your mercy. And you'll put our feet back on the path to walking with you. God, help us be real when we mess up. Help us turn to you and not run from you. And we thank you that you will be faithful to forgive us. God, we do pray that you would intervene in the circumstances of our life. God, that that we could forgive each other, that we could extend the same kind of mercy you've extended to us. Lord, that we can be a part of seeing situations be restored and redeemed in our own life and the life of others. God, we're desperate for that. We need you. We thank you that you are always there faithfully. It's in Jesus' name we pray this morning. Amen.